following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. As we do this, as we show compassion, as we try to help people stand on their own, it's crucial that we do this with the right kind of attitude. And I'm honestly a little scared and uh, confused about how to best deliver this sermon. So if I sound lost, it's because I am, uh, which is often the case, but God helps. Um, Because I really believe that this is an issue that for most of us who come from the, the wealthier Western part of the world, it's a huge blind spot for us. We don't realize the attitude that our help gets delivered with. Right? So I want to look this morning at, uh, at, at one more time at the parable of the Good Samaritan and really uh, consider the attitude we need to have to be truly effective in helping hurting people or helping anybody for that matter, just as we relate to uh, the body of Christ and to people all around us and we seek to minister to them. So let's uh, read through the the story one one more time from uh, Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed by him. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Uh, Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I will pay you the next time I am here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits, Jesus asked. And the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, yes. Now, go and do the same. Um, As we all know and familiar with this story, um, Jesus uh, throws a very crazy and radical character into the story as the hero. Uh, and, of course, we all know that uh, the, the Jews and the Samaritans were, were enemies and hated each other. And so for Jesus to uh, insert in, in the hero place in the story a Samaritan would have uh, unraveled his listening audience. Right? Uh, 
perhaps, you know, uh, and I, I, I did this first time I read it a couple of weeks ago, if you were to make the hero a Muslim or a practicing homosexual, right, it would kind of have that same effect of like, what, right, what? Um, and certainly Jesus uh, teaches through this uh, volumes that he does not uh, explain, uh, he does not give commentary on, but he, he certainly wants us to reflect on the Samaritan, right, who is uh, a key figure in the story. And, of course, the first point that uh, is, is quite obvious and clear is that we are t- called to show compassion to everybody regardless of who they are, even to those we despise or those we would consider enemies or those who would consider themselves enemies to us, right? So we're not to be prejudiced or particular or selective in who we show compassion to. Uh, that is certainly one of the t- truths that Jesus teaches by putting the Samaritan in, in this place. But I think there's another very important lesson. And I would suggest that Jesus is also making a point about the attitude we have as we come to help someone in need. Um, uh, some of you who are good with math, which everybody should know that I am not, anybody who works closely with me will know that. So it's dangerous for, for me to use math illustrations, right? But I, I remember in math, I, I actually could never get it right, but I remember in math there was these symbols uh, less than or equal to, right? And it's a, it's a little arrow pointing one direction or the other. That's the part I could never figure out. It's like, like I'm too dyslexic. It's like this less than or this less than. I, I never get it, but... There's that mathematical symbol, less than or equal to. Uh, And I think the principle Jesus is teaching here with the Samaritan is that we are to help people with an attitude of one who is less than or equal to, not one who is greater than. Um, uh, To the Jews, the Samaritan and the Samaritan people were, of course, despised, hated, and were very much looked down on, right? The Jews would have seen the, uh, the Samaritans as an inferior class of people, not as equals. Even though they were distant relatives, remnants from the, uh, the divided kingdom in the early days after, uh, after King David, they saw them as inferior people. And so Jesus, so get the picture here, Jesus puts somebody that the Jewish this, this law expert listening would have recognized and identified as an inferior class of person, coming to offer help and assistance. And I believe that that's one of the major points of the story. Jesus says that when you go to give help to people, you should do so as one who is less than or equal to the person you are helping. Now, if you are a serious exegete of Scripture and a serious Bible scholar, you may be saying, Tim, you're just reading way too much into the story from this image and you're, you're, you're practicing very bad hermeneutics. Okay, I'll give that to you. Um, but let's test it and see what the rest of Scripture says. If there is other support that would, would demonstrate that this principle is true, not just here, but in other places in Scripture. And to do that, let's begin actually with this, this parable, with this story. Um, in verse 36, uh, Jesus says, Which of the three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the man answered, The Samaritan. Is that what he says? No, I can't bring himself to say that, right? Because he's so despised, right? he's so lowly. Instead, he says this, he says, The one who does what? The one who shows mercy, right? And that concept of mercy 
uh, was displayed by the Samaritan who came and it says he responded with compassion. It's a key word and a key concept in the, par- in the story. What does the word mercy mean? Right? When you think of the word mercy, if you were to define it, how would you describe or define what mercy is? What's very interesting, if we look up in the Greek word, the Greek word that's used here for mercy, uh, the Greeks um, had uh, clear ideas about what mercy was, and they, they would dis- define it this way. The idea of the emotion roused by contact with an, aff- with an affliction which comes undeservedly on someone. Right? Hence, they would define it as compassion, pity, or mercy. Right? So in other words, the Greeks saw mercy as feeling sorry for somebody. You know, the, the Samaritan's walking along the road and he sees this person who's been beat up and fallen under very bad circumstances, undeserved to him. And you feel sorry for him because of the hardship that's fallen on him. The focus in this idea is how we feel in response to what we see. And what we feel is, as we look at this poor victim, we feel sorry for them. I would say that the modern concept of how we view mercy would be very much like that. Oftentimes, when we think about helping poor and needy people, that's what we think of. We think of people who are low, poor, misfortunate. We even call them things like uh, the undeserving, right? The uh, misfortunate, right? And we look at the misfortunate and the, um, you know, the down and out, the lowly, and we think, wow, it must really, I can't use the word suck, can I? It must really be unfortunate to be them. I didn't use the word. Um, and so we look down on them, right? Uh, it's interesting, though, the Hebrew concept of mercy is very different. And, of course, Jesus would, uh, would have been speaking in Aramaic. Aramaic. He, would have, he would have been using the word mercy from a very Hebrew Old Testament concept. Well, the Old Testament concept is a, is a radically different one, and it's not based on feelings, how we, we see somebody and respond emotionally. It is a word that is directly tied to the concept of covenant. Right? It means the proper covenant behavior, the solidarity which the partners in the covenant owe one another. Uh, it may be between equals or made by one who is stronger, but in either case, it results in one giving help to another in his need. Right? There is, uh, in, in the Hebrew context, everything is about covenant. It's about a covenant with God. It's about a covenant contract relationship with your fellow Jews. And what the lawyer is really asking here is, what is my covenant obligation? Right? He knows he's supposed to show mercy, but he asks, he's asking Jesus, who is in this covenant relationship with me? Is it just the people of Israel? Is it just the godly people of Israel? Surely it's not all of humanity. And, of course, Jesus tells a story to refute his idea of mercy. He says, no, mercy is a covenant agreement with all humanity. Uh, we, are, we are all together as human beings, partners in a covenant of relationship, and God has dictated or described the obligation or the or the, the duty that we owe to each other as human beings. We are to uh, care for each other. We are to s- respond to another person's need because of that covenant relationship. 
Now, you may be thinking, um, you know, I just, I just don't remember signing this covenant, right? When I was born, you know, nobody put this piece of paper in front of me that said, I am in a covenant relationship with the rest of humanity. Um, that I somehow need to treat others as equal partners in, in accordance with some agreement I've supposedly signed. Um, interestingly, though, even though we, not, we may not have signed it, universally, uh, humanity has this sense of duty and obligation to our fellow human being. Um, and one of the best proofs of this is uh, the United Nations document on human rights. Right? You all read it, I'm sure. Probably got it on your wall, right? Um, very interesting document. I'm not going to read the whole thing. <laughs> There's 30 articles. Uh, but let me just read a couple things from the preamble and two articles, the first and the last. Okay? The preamble, it says this, Whereas recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world, Right? So got that. So whereas, in other words, the world operates on this principle of inherent dignity and equality of all human beings. Right? And whereas the people of the United Nations have in the Charter reaffirmed their faith in fundamental human rights and the dignity and worth of the human person and in the equal rights of men and women everywhere. Right? Okay, so they're, they're, they're about to enter us into a covenant and the basis of that covenant is what? Well, it, it's, it's the dignity, the, the value and worth of human beings universally. Right? Uh, so what are the expectations? What are the binding elements of this contract? Well, there's 30 of them. Uh, you should read them because you're supposed to know these. There will be a test. But let me just read the first and the last as an example. First article. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed with the reason and conscience and should, get this, and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood. Right? So here you've got this, uh, this group of nations representing uh, powerful uh, allies around the world saying um, that this is how we should treat each other as human beings. We have an obligation, a duty to treat each other as family, as brothers. Uh, who look out for each other simply because we are human beings. And human beings have been vested with a, uh, an, a level of dignity and worth. Right? The last one wraps it up. Actually, it's the second to last, but almost the end. It says this. Everyone has duties to the community in which alone the free and full development of his personality is possible. Right? So... so so we really do have some sense of this, right? There is uh, an unwritten contract or agreement between human beings that we are to treat each other with respect and dignity and with a certain right, right? People have a right to our help. Um, it's interesting that this, uh, this document that uses words like dignity and faith, uh, these concepts come purely out of Scripture. They come from no other religion or no, no other philosophical point of view. Right? Because where does human dignity come from? Well, what is human dignity? Well, uh, Kant, Immanuel Kant defined dignity this way. He said, Dignity is worth or value 
for which there is no substitute. Okay, something that has worth or value for which there is no substitute. Right. Today, you're all going to go out and you're all going to buy lunch. Some of you have already started thinking about what you're going to order. Shame on you. Right? Bad, bad people. Right? And, and you, will, you will exchange something of equal value for what you get. Right? Because a lot of things in, in, in life have worth that has a substitute, and that substitute is money or gold or some other thing that we can trade. But there are some things in the world that have a worth so extreme and so far out there that there is no substitute. In other words, you cannot buy it. And one of those supremely is human beings. There's a basic principle. Human beings cannot be sold. They cannot be bought because they have a worth or dignity uh, without substitute, without exchange. Well, where does that come from? Well, it comes from Scripture. It comes from a God who created you and I in God's image, in his image. And therefore, we have a value and a worth as human beings, regardless of who we are, regardless if we're the worst criminal in the world or if we're a saint who can walk on water, we all possess equal dignity as God's creatures, right? So so mercy fits greatly into this concept, right? The Old Testament idea of mercy is that Because that is true, and because we all equally subscribe to that common belief that human beings have dignity, we do have an obligation or duty to treat them a certain way. And what that treatment means is if people need help, if they are struggling, if they uh, are in a place where they're reaching out for help, we have a duty to respond. Of course, there's a higher covenant that we are also in as Christians, And that is a covenant relationship with God who saved us, who reached out to us in our desperate need. And if we are loving God, then we are in a covenant bound by our devotion to God to show extraordinary love and kindness to people around us. So as Christians, this should be a mark of who we are. We ought to be uh, not just nice and polite people, which we should be that, but people who actually love and care for everybody and who treat people everywhere with dignity and respect and care. Right? Um, so I would say the word mercy, as it's used here, uh, backs up my theory, right? that uh, we are to help people as less than or equal, not as greater than. Right? It's, in the, it's, it's inherent in the idea of our human contract. Second thing, uh, this is exactly how Jesus helped people. Jesus modeled this extremely well. Uh, we don't have time to look at all the references, but let me just read a couple. Uh, Matthew 9, 35, 36 says this, And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. So God helped, uh, Jesus helped people in incredible ways. Why did he help them? When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed, and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Right? Jesus responds to the human need around him with compassion, with mercy. Uh, and using this Old Testament concept, Jesus felt not sorry for them. I mean, he may have felt sorry. But what compassion means in this context is he felt an obligation and a duty to serve his fellow human beings, to do something to help them. Right? Um, and as he gave this compassion... 
He does not do it with an attitude of superiority. Right? Uh, even though he is superior in every way imaginable. Right? Is there a way in which Jesus is not superior, infinitely superior to us? No. But is that the attitude with which he comes to, to love us? No, he comes as a servant. Most powerfully, this is uh, described in Philippians 2, where it says, Let each of you uh, have this mind, this attitude among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. Well, what was his attitude? Well, he was in the form God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. However, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Did Jesus come as one greater than us? Well, he was one greater than us. But that's not the attitude that he came with. From being born in a barn to being crucified as a criminal on a cross, Jesus came as one less than, right? As one who emptied himself, who came in incredible humility and lowliness, right? So if Jesus came with this attitude, it should instruct us, right? Last thing. Uh, it is what Jesus and, and the rest of the New Testament teaches. Again, lots of scriptures I could read. We don't have time, but let me give two. Um, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right? A mark of what it means to enter into the gospel is that we recognize our spiritual poverty before Christ. Um, James puts it this way. Believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them. But those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. Right? So, so if, you're, if you're here and you're rich, which if you come from the Western world, you're rich. I know you're Christian workers who don't feel rich. Right? I know none of you, you know, came in the stretch limo Hummer this morning. But compared to the rest of the world, we are rich. And... and, and James instructs us, we who are rich should boast in the fact that God has humbled us, that we, we occupy a very humble position in, in the status of God's kingdom. All right, so uh, have I made my case? You guys agree, right? Uh, the attitude with which we should deliver help should be one not of superiority, but really one as an equal or less than as one who comes with great humility and loneliness as we deliver help. Now, um, this is where it gets tricky because I think this is an area that we are largely blinded to as we come from the West. Uh, The problem is that we come with great heart and great intentions. And those are good things. We come to help people... Most of us did not come to run over people. Most of us came to bring and to channel the resources and wisdom and wealth that is so available in the West and make it more accessible and bring it to bear in ways that would help uh, people in in Asia. Uh, And the the deal is this, that we get so focused on our our heart and our intentions and and our methods and what we hope to accomplish 
that we are largely blind to the attitude we come, we come with, right? Um, because it is so subtle and so easy to overlook. Um, and the attitude is this. The attitude is this. Well, I come from a place where there is tons of money. I have tons of education. I have all kinds of degrees. I've read all kinds of books. I've watched YouTube videos, right, about how to do stuff. How much more qualified can you get than that, right? And we come with this attitude that says, I know more than the people I'm going to help. I have all the answers and the solutions, and I have all the money to pay for it. And so if you'll just pay attention to me, I'm going to fix your problems and make your life better. Do we do that? Oh, boy, do we do that, right? Do we do that? I remember uh, an experience, an encounter with a guy who came, going to save the world, going to, you know, rescue uh, trafficked children and people who are abused and great heart, great vision, great passion to um, do good things for God, right? Came totally clueless about Asian culture, about Asian needs, about what's really the situation here. Began uh, working with girls who had been trafficked and were at risk of traffic and had been living on the streets, that kind of thing. And he uh, decided that these kids really need to know how much they were loved. And the way you show love to kids like this is by giving them endless hugs, right? Because that's what you do in America where he came from, right? So he starts attacking these girls with hugs who just freak out, right? Because Asians just are not real crazy about the whole hugging thing, right? Especially by total large strangers who don't speak your language and uh, happen to look a lot like the people that had been buying you and using you before, right? Uh, was it helpful? No. Was it damaging? Possibly, right? Was it scaring the daylights out of these girls? Yes. Right? Uh, but he was convinced, right, that this is, that he knew what they needed, right? That's an arrogance and a pride and an attitude of superiority that unravels any efforts we try to do to be helpful. Um, The truth is that we often feel superior because we are better off. But the reality is better off does not mean we are better people. It just means that we have been born in a place with incredible blessings and privilege. And we should be grateful for that. But we should never have the wrong assumption that what God has blessed us with elevates us to a status and position above the rest of the world. It's foolish and silly. Um, And worse off, it it cripples our efforts to help people. Um, Another example of this. in, where we work uh, with the foundation in Isan, uh, in the province of Gallus, and there are about 1,500 rural villages. Um, many of them do not have adequate drinking water. And I don't mean drinking water, like drinking, but like tap water, right? Uh, they have wells that don't work or systems that are failing. And so a huge need that they have it really is water systems. A group came in from the West, again, with lots of money, and expertise, right? Expertise. And uh, their goal was to drill 10 wells a year in these villages, right? Uh, They've been doing this now for three years. Guess how many wells they've drilled? Three. 
three, right? You know why? Because they would not listen to the local people about what they needed, right? And they had all these ridiculous uh, requirements about what they thought would work and how things could be done. And out of 1,500 villages, we could only find three that met the requirements. Right? Uh, they're not helping right? because they're coming in with this attitude, attitude that says, we know what you need because we're the experts. We've never actually stepped a foot in Asia, but this worked in Africa, so we know stuff. Uh, it's this attitude of superiority that cripples the capacity and ability to help. So I believe that Jesus would say to us, we really need to check our attitude and create a new identity of poverty. James says, uh, you who are rich, uh, you need to uh, consider yourselves blessed because you are poor. Well, how are we poor? Well, we are poor the same way every single other human being in the whole world is poor. The beginning of the gospel starts with this. I am spiritually destitute and lost. Right? I have n- no resources or capacity in myself to, to solve my problems to get myself into a place where I can be in right relationship with God. I am desperately needy before God. And we are saved by his grace. Not because we're smart, not because we're wealthy, not because we have it figured out, but because we acknowledge our spiritual poverty before the Father. That should be, and and I think scripturally, that ought to be the identity that we own. That we are just a bunch of Poor saps, right? Poor people who are desperately in need of help. And we have some gifts. We don't have them all. We have some answers. We don't have them all. Right, so what does this look like in real life? Well, let me uh, close with um, what I call my helping hand. Five things, right, that you can do when you go to help people. Um, and you can use your uh, hand to help you remember. So the first one, everybody raise your hand. You've got to do this. It's stupid, I know, but it'll help you remember. Put it to your eye. First thing you do is what? You look. You look around. See the needs around you. Uh, Jesus did this. He says, as he drew near the gate of the town, behold, the man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her... He had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep, right? Jesus was very aware. And in this story, he's, he's coming in from out of town. He doesn't know these people. But Jesus is constantly looking to see the needs around him. Um, uh, we need to see the needs. And here's the, here's the issue. What we often see is outward behavior that makes us angry and disgusted, right? Uh, we see girls sell it, or boys selling themselves down on you know, the night bazaar, and we're revolted by their behavior. The Bible tells us to get past the behavior and look at the hurt and need that's behind it. I don't have time to tell the whole story, but we worked with a guy, uh, a ref, uh, refugee from Burma, fled when he was 12 years old, ended up in Chiang Mai at 12, starving to death. The only way he could make money to live was to sell himself to men, right? 
13 years later, he still, that's the only way he knows how to live, right? Uh, is his behavior revolting? Probably. But do you see the need behind it? Here's a guy who was desperately trapped in something he hated, right? By the time he's 25 years old, he has a wife and children. So not only is he supporting himself, but he's have, he has to support this family. And it's the only thing he knows how to do, right? He needs help, not judgment and condemnation. So first thing, listen, um, look. Second thing, listen, listen, right? Listen. You can listen like this, right? Um, Again, Jesus modeled this. They brought a boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, get this, Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It often casts him into the fire and tries to destroy him, right? Jesus just doesn't, here's Jesus, God of the universe, all right? Does Jesus need to know information to heal this boy? Well, not really. (laughs) He could just say, ah, enough of this. You're better, right? He has the power to do that. But does Jesus do that? No. He stops and he takes time to listen to the story that's behind it, right? Um, We need to, and this is where humility comes in, right? When we go to people we want to help, do we have the patience and sensitivity and empathy to ask them their story, to listen to what is going on in their life. The reality is what people need often more than anything else is someone who will understand what they are going through. They don't always need just our money. Often what they need is another human being who will see them as valuable and with dignity. And one of the ways, one of the most powerful ways we can do that is to just listen and seek to understand what they are going through. Because the reality is most of us have not gone through that kind of stuff. When we work with poor and needy people in this part of the world, most of us have no idea what that is like. So we need to be careful to listen uh, and, and have empathy for what they are experiencing. Next thing. Put your hands together. So look, listen, pray. Okay, I'm losing you. You guys are not doing your motions. There's going to be a song. No, there won't. Pray. Right, pray. Right. Um, again, Jesus models us uh, at the tomb of Lazarus. Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud. I prayed it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here, so they will believe you sent me. Uh, Jesus tells the disciples, "You can only cast out these tough cases what by prayer." And Jesus makes his prayers loud and audible. Why? Not because he's, it's some magic spell that God's not going to work. He says, I'm praying all the time. Me and the Father, we pray constantly. But I'm praying out loud so that the crowd will know I am praying and that the source of my healing power is, is God, not me. Right? Something extremely powerful when you come to a person, you see their need, you hear their story, and you just say, can I bring your need before the God of the universe who's really the only answer to our problems? I really can't help you. Be real clear and upfront with that right now. I just heard a story through the grapevine about myself. I love that. It's called gossip. Um, and it came from one staff who had been talking to another staff. And uh, they said, 
Well, when I go to, this is Thai staff, okay, Thai staff. They said, when I go to Tim for help, all he ever does is says, I'll pray for you, <laughs> which was not what they were looking for, right? Um, and that's my reputation. You go, you go to Tim for help, and he'll just say, I'll pray for you. Well, uh, on one hand, I'm thankful that that's the reputation I have, right? Because I am not the answer to all their problems, right? I want them to know the, and direct them to the God of the universe, who's the one who can help them. And the reality is, oftentimes I just pray for them because I really don't know what else to do, right? It's like, that, that's all I got. I can pray, right? Um, when we pray, uh, we enter with them into seeking God's answers to the problems, right? We don't have the arrogance that says, oh, yeah, I know what you need. You say, I don't know what you need. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what God's answer is. So let's together go to God and ask him how to solve this problem. Um, you know, the, the reality is people may come to you and they may be very sick. They may be dying. You're, you're not going to make them better uh, by yourself, right? Uh, but you can pray for them. And guess what? If God heals them, it's going to be way cool, right? And they're going to learn the power of God in his heart to help them. Uh, fourth thing, um, I don't know. How, I don't have a sign for this one, but it goes back to your mouth. Ask them, okay? Ask them how you can help them. Right? You've listened to the story. You pray. Now, just say, how can I help you? What What is it you need from me? And again, Jesus models this. Um, as they approached Jericho, a blind beggar was sitting beside the road. When he heard the the noise of the crowd going past, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus is going by. So he began shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Uh, Be quiet, the people in front yelled at him. But he only shouted louder, son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus heard him, he stopped and ordered that the man be brought to him. As the man came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Right? What do you want? What? And here's Jesus, blind guy. Okay, you think it doesn't take a rocket science to figure this one out. But Jesus stops and says, how can I help you? What do you want me to do for you? The reality is oftentimes what people are asking is, is radically different than what we're trying to solve and fix. And what this does is this, in, it invests them with dignity again, right? That they can figure it out and that they do know how to solve the problems of their life. They just don't know quite how to get there. They can't do it on their own. But oftentimes they know what they need, right? And we are valuing them when we ask what they think the solution is, how they think they can solve it. Last one. Uh, Get your hands dirty, right? Do something, right? Don't just say, well, okay, have a nice life, right? Uh, we need to come alongside them, not as one with all the answers, but as one who is willing to walk with them and work together with them to help them stand on their own. Last story. Um, when we first, one of the very first projects we started with the foundation, uh, it was actually 10 years ago before we even had a foundation, but we as a church had committed to helping, to showing mercy, to getting involved with poor people and needy people here in our city. Um, we were working at that time in Gampangam community. It was our very first project, one of our very first projects. 
Uh, and the kids there, it's kind of a slum, very poor. Uh, none of the kids there were graduating from high school. Uh, they were all going to uh, school for traditional dance, right? So there's a good career opportunity. You know, I get out of high school and I can do traditional dance because there's a real market for that. Um, you like my traditional dance? Yeah. So um, Pumarin, our, our Thai staff person there, started asking questions, digging, getting information. And she asked them, what do you want? What do you need? How can we help your community? And they said, we would love for our kids to get a better education. So we came alongside them, and we helped pay for schooling at a a better school, Chiang Mai Christian School. Uh, Unbelievable the impact that that's had in that community. Uh, It was their idea. We just came alongside in a way to uh, help them do that. Uh, Almost all the kids that have gone from 7th grade through 12th grade have graduated from high school and gone on to college. Uh, last year, one of them got into Ching Mai University. Really hard to do, right? So here's this kid from a slum community where none of their parents have ever graduated from anything. Their parents are all working in bars, many of them as prostitutes, high incidence of AIDS and other problems. And now their kids are going to college. Right? Another kid got a full-ride scholarship to pie up in the nursing program, right? Simply because we came alongside them, uh, listened to their story, and helped them stand. Right? Uh, a lot of those kids have come to Christ, and they, they know they want their life to count for Jesus. Right? Um, quick pictures. I'll review real quick. You've got to remember this. Look, listen, pray, uh, ask, get your hands dirty, do. Right? Can you do that? With what kind of attitude? Less than or equal. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.